that basically everything you do on the computer, someone probably will find out about it eventually because everything we input, every email we type, every time you search Google, anytime you do anything online, it's going into a database. It's being saved somewhere. Welcome to What's Ethical, a podcast sponsored by Warburton Advisors, where thought leaders engage on how they influence others and master ethical dilemmas, all with the aim towards helping listeners deliver a triple bottom line. My guest today is Christian Ficacci a serial entrepreneur having founded a leading career resource website for compliance professionals. As a CIO, Christian founded a compliance technology company, Transparent, and more recently he patented an AI-powered data solution, providing the largest real-time source for negative news and risk information. Not to mention, Christian is also a former compliance officer covering AML and counter-terrorist financing, and of course, sanctions compliance as well. Welcome, Christian. Thanks, Beth. Great to be here. Appreciate your time today here on What's Ethical. Let's just jump right to it. And in your opinion, um, have we moved past AML-only focus? And do you really think the, you know, the part of compliance has moved into more systemic anti-fraud programs? Or do you think that's just a generalization? Yeah, I think it tends to be a generalization. And when you think about really big banks, um, they're already very siloed, right? So you're going to have the AML groups, you're going to have the fraud groups, you're going to have the cyber groups. And even within the AML and fraud, you're going to have multiple silos with in those groups, right? You're gonna have AML, enhanced due diligence, transaction monitoring, know your customer. Um, so especially for really large financial institutions, it's going to be tough to systemically bridge AML and fraud cohesively because already you're working with across you know 10 different departments globally in a, in a multinational organization. Uh, so I think there's gonna be more coordination between the two. You're gonna see um, kind of li- fraud liaise with AML and MRFR leads and same with sanctions and things like that. Uh, so there will be synergies between the groups, but kind of having one group that does all these different purposes, I would just be, there's too many fiefdoms in a, in a bank or a big company that everyone's trying to protect. Uh, so I think that would be the main challenge, even just consolidating one of those verticals. It's interesting as I, I listen to you, because I guess there's efficiencies, right? If you do see the commonality between, say, anti-bribery, uh, anti-money laundering, general anti-fraud of conflicts of interest, um, and those types of matters, for those in the audience that come from smaller organizations, I think it's, if nothing else, it's a good reminder when you're thinking about AML in the fintech space, and if you're just a money service business, you're not a fully regulated entity, potentially you should be thinking about some of these other issues so that you're not uncovered in your compliance program, even if you have a light one, if you're not a fully regulated bank. That's exactly right. And what we're seeing now, which is newer, is uh, cyber. Cyber is like the big thing, especially because all the crime that's happening online which is directly connected to both the fraud and AML groups. So you're seeing fusion centers a lot of times. I know City does it, some other companies do it, 
where it's kind of this multi-group or, or uh, department group within a bank um, from all the different disciplines. And they try to have a fusion center just to distribute information where it's appropriate. But like you said, the, that's only for large institutions. The, I think the, the bigger the bank, the less hats you're going to wear. Or the bigger organization, the less hats you're going to wear and the more specialized you're just going to be naturally. But when you're at a smaller company or even a mid-sized company, you're just going to have the compliance officers, you're going to have a lot more jobs. And it's going to be much broader than really vertical, where if you're at, you know, a big bank, you are focused on this piece of KYC. It could be, I'm looking at doing KYC for private bank, you know, high net worth individuals, and that's your specialty. And then I have a KYC for corporate trusts, et cetera, um, where when you're in a smaller institution, you're going to be across the board wearing a lot more hats. Yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder that when you're looking at risk systemically at a midsize or a smaller organization, or even if you're in your silo in a large organization, if you happen to find something material, it could impact other parts of the organization. So it's, if nothing else, a good reminder to escalate if there's something that's a, that's a potential material matter. Switching gears a bit to a question we ask all of the guests, which is when you think of ethical behavior, what does that mean to you? So outside of the kind of a definition of what I think it is, the way I look at it is kind of the old saying, you know, if you think about what your actions are going to be, if they were published on the front page of the newspaper, how would you feel about it? Kind of applying that, although it, it wouldn't be the newspaper day, it could be online or, you know, syndicated through whatever. That's kind of the rule I make when I uh, am going to make a decision, right? Especially if I think the decision might be questionable in any way. Say, if I'm going to make this decision, if everyone in the world knew about this, what would they think about that? What would they think about me? And what do I want to tell the world of who I am making these type of decisions? Uh, so that's just kind of the general rule I use. And it, it's even truer now with all the digital that basically everything you do on the computer someone probably will find out about it eventually because everything we input, every email we type, every time you search Google, anytime you do anything online, it's going into a database. It's being saved somewhere. So kind of that mental framework is even truer now than I think it's ever been because there's actually a good chance that anything you do online, especially, will be made available at some point in the future or at least has the potential to. I like what you said because I spend a lot of time on data governance and worried about data aggregation and misuse of the information or, or companies not having consent. But I like what you said because the silver lining of it is that there potentially could be increased transparency, increased sunshine. So maybe with the advent of more technological advancements, you have more natural uh, ethical behavior or compliant behavior because it's just the incentives are just naturally aligned you can't you can't hide uh unless you're super savvy from a tech perspective uh but i like what you said because that's sort of a silver lining with all the data aggregation and all of the different tracking that that at times uh i think that's for a different podcast right <laughs> yeah i think that's a, it's a different podcast but i think this is a unique time in our history where we're going to look back on this and be like, oh, I can't believe those people in the 2000 shared everything they know online. Uh, because obviously, so that's a challenge now. 
I think it will lead to more sunshine when people realize everything they put on the internet is being saved somewhere. But I just think we're at a small period where people don't even really realize that yet, except if you're in data governance, if you work with information. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, smoking was, I would assume, you know, 60 or 70 years ago, where it was like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. And now we look back and we're like, yeah, that was pretty bad. That's um, right. And and if you're paying attention, right, California is trying to tell everyone, as is Europe. Uh, but still, I think until until there is some event, right, there, there's just, there's, the risk doesn't seem actual or reasonable. Yeah. It seems a little bit far-fetched. Um, yeah. So coming back to AML and enforcement cases, maybe you can just pick one recently or some sort of example. But if you could share with the audience, many of whom are risk officers, um, what you see as a common issue that is lacking in compliance programs that leads to these enforcement cases, and if you're a strategic compliance officer, what, what would you say they should be focusing on? There's been a, a few themes recently, within the last probably, I don't know, six months. Uh, Deutsche Bank was the most recent. We saw it with Apple and GE, both at the end of 2019. Uh, and they were all similar themed, although slightly different. They were sanctions related cases where they missed some sanctioned entity that they were doing business with. And unique across all of them, was blaming the software that they were using to screen transactions, right? Uh, so in the Deutsche Bank case, it was they had it set up to be exact name match, right? If you're taking ABC Corp and you're doing business with, we're going to search this against the OFAC list exactly as it's written, which we know um, data is messy. You know, when customers, were, they're onboarded in our databases, it might not be the ABC Corp, it may be ABC Corporation, there might be dots. Uh, the Apple case was even simpler the name was lowercase, right? And, or capitalized and the only match with it was lowercase. So I think that the takeaway from these is compliance officers are, they're changing more to be more technical in nature, but by default, they're not necessarily technical people, right? They're, they have law backgrounds, things like that. And I think a lot of times when we say, we know we need to do screening, we know we need to automate things and use different uh, technology. It's almost like they won't, we want a checkbox, checkbox approach. We want to say, okay, we picked this vendor, we use this system, so it's just going to work, right? There's kind of that thinking, nothing is ever just going to work. There are so many different things to keep this system running, both as far as taking in the list we're screening against, making sure that they're coming in in time, are we processing the names, how are we doing the matching? Uh, so even once you onboard a system, you really have to be hands-on or have someone who's really knowledgeable in it to continually make sure it's working as expected. Um, and that's just not giving us the results we want or don't want, but just technically under the covers, um, is everything working and do we have checks and balances to make sure it's working? I think we miss a lot of that in the tech side. From the compliance perspective, we have audit, right? That's exactly what their job is but there is, the audit for the technology is, is not as strong, right? And when we write computer code, we do something called unit tests, which are basically, we write a piece of code and then we write a test to test and make sure that codes work. So when we do an update, we can run all of our tests and make sure each individual thing works. Um, so I would think in the future, there's going to be more compliance officers just paying attention to that piece and making sure they have controls in place to ensure that these systems are working as expected all the time. And if one, you know, 
OFAC might change the format of their list and that could break your whole system. Are you going to know about that? Or are you going to continue screening against these names that don't work for the next six months until, you know, the OCC or, or FinCEN, you know, tells you about it? It's so interesting to hear you identify that because it's just an increase in sophistication. But the, the same issue about adopting an off-the-shelf program, whether it was when you were getting electronic feeds for outside brokerage accounts, or as you are describing it, I can think of enforcement cases from 10 years ago, right? That were sort of similar to what you're talking about within the last year. And I, I really thought what you said was interesting because especially in the digital asset space, if compliance officers aren't already doing what you're suggesting, they could be missing a part of their testing. SEC has done some guidance saying that the compliance officers do have to understand the algorithms that are used. And what you just gave was a, a really practical bit of advice, which is if you aren't a mathematician or a technologist, as long as you can ask whether or not the code is being tested appropriately or Again, you could even have a third party do it. Um, that, that's some, that's some uh, very practical advice. Thank you. And, and it's related to sort of my last question, Christian, which is when we talk about advancing technologies, whether it's machine learning, blockchain, or artificial intelligence, probably uh, more specifically on AI, because I know that you've done a lot of work there. If you're a, com a risk officer, how would you say that they should get up to speed to be able to have an effective compliance program, be able to really test and know what the risks are? Yeah, the, and it's challenging now because there's so much misinformation about AI and, that, and a lot of that comes from marketing departments for you know, vendors and things like that. Everyone is kind of touting their solution as solving all your problems. And it's tough because it's a complicated process or, or topic, right? So you have to understand multiple layers of it. I mean, I, I'm going to assume that if anyone is kind of listening to this, they're probably down the right path where they're curious and they're looking for resources. So that's a really good start, right? Listen to what different people in the industry do say, um, you know, start with Wikipedia, right? Because there's even a lot of terms that you're going to see. That's probably this place you start and then, and then you're on a good topic. But my just general rule for people when they're vetting machine learning type systems um, is a lot of gut check stuff outside of the technology. What I mean by that is listen to the claims that they're kind of making about the technology and know, wait, is this even possible at all, right? That's kind of the first step because there's a lot of times people are making claims that computers are going to do things that are impossible to know. And an example of that is like, if so you, I had an AI algorithm and I said, this is who's going to win the 2020 presidential election, right? And it can pick it. Um, that's a cool claim, but that's impossible. There are a million plus variables which would, is going to affect that outcome and nobody's going to know, no computer's going to know. Uh, so I could, that's kind of the first bit saying, hey, let's do a gut check of what they're saying. Is that even possible? And then kind of work down that path from there. Um, but there shouldn't, especially in compliance, there shouldn't be any black boxes because ultimately you have to explain what's happening and what the output of these systems are. Um, so there should never be a point where something is doing something and you have no idea why it's doing it, right? A computer system, automation, anything. 
you either have to know or someone who works for you or in your organization has to be able to explain it. So one, I would just do the gut check and two, make sure you have someone, if it's not you, who can explain why this is happening. Because at some point, you're going to get the wrong answers from this automated system because it's just how it's going to work. And when that happens, you have to be able to say why it's the wrong answer, right? Or even know when it happens. Because um, ultimately, the computers aren't going to be held accountable, right? The people who are behind this are going to be the ones that are held accountable. So you have to be comfortable with these systems. And what was the reasonable due diligence initially and then ongoing? And that yeah. really is a core part of compliance programs in 2020. So maybe we'll, we'll round out uh, this episode with, is there, as you look into fourth quarter and you look into 2021, uh, what trends do you see that you think compliance or risk officers should stay on top of? So the big one we're seeing uh, is just using data that you have in your internally and externally in efficient ways. Uh, that's kind of, it's been a trend, but it's going to be continually happening. And a lot of the reason for that is we've been doing different things in AML and different kinds of compliance. And it's almost like uh, we've been doing it because it's been handed down for years, right? This is the way we do AML because post-Patriot Act, the first AML founding people said, these are the risky businesses. This is how you have to pay attention to. And we've just kind of been following those procedures. Uh, but now as we're looking into the data, we're realizing we're really maybe not that good at predicting money laundering or the thing controls we had in place. We might be able to check in boxes and passing audits, but are they solving the purpose of this department, right? Um, so even it's coming down from the regulators, like FinCEN said, hey, give us recommendations for different ways to improve modern AML. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of introspection in the industry, hopefully. Uh, we even see that in BuzzFeed News and ICIJ released the FinCEN files, which was the leak of, of SARS, suspicious activity reports, a bank's file, um, highlighting some, some issues. And I think there's going to be introspection of we have so much data now, we can say what we've been doing, what works and doesn't work. And if something doesn't work and it costs a lot of money and it just wastes time, let's stop doing it and reallocate those resources to things that are more effective. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruits in the, the compliance world, I think. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it, Christian. Thank you, Beth. Learn more about delivering a triple bottom line by visiting warburtonadvisors.com. And remember to share and like this podcast so others can find it more easily.